Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I wanted to share with you a fascinating podcast I had the pleasure of being a guest on recently. It's called All About Change, and it's devoted to stories of activism, change, and courage, individuals who have leveraged the hardship they've endured to better other people's lives. It's hosted by Jay Ruderman, a lifelong activist, and features guests such as NBA star Kevin Love, actor Gina Davis, and in their most recent episode, me. So if you're in need of a dose of hope and inspiration, I recommend you check out All About Change with Jay Ruderman wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Folks, you had opinions on last week's episode. We had Mark Zeno on. So for those who didn't hear it, we had Mark Zeno on. Mark is a, a conservative, but, you know, not like totally entrenched guy to the point where he is mostly a sports radio guy in Atlanta, but he also had uh, a brief, very brief, like four month career as a conservative talk radio guy, but it was deemed that he wasn't conservative enough, wasn't carrying the Trump water enough. So they fired him. So he's like a guy who considered voting for Biden, uh, didn't, but considered voting for Biden in 2020. We had him on the show to discuss things last week. And, you know, we were really, I think, Ravi, I think you feel this way too. We were trying to model how to have these conversations and people had interesting reactions to that. What's interesting is we got a lot of people saying, all right, this is exactly the kind of conversation I want to hear. And then there were a lot of people who were like, uh, I couldn't listen. <laughs> so uh, we want to engage with that and talk a little bit about why we had him on and how we think about those types of conversations. Now, let's start with Jonathan from North Carolina. He sent us a message saying, he wasn't able to listen for the first five minutes uh, because he of the comment that Zeno made around Trump being the lesser of two evils. But Jonathan said he then did go back the next day and appreciated the conversation. And I think it's a starting point to say, look, like there's the decision to either stop the record when somebody says something we disagree with. You know, there was this moment. There's another one we'll talk about in a second. My general feeling about this is if we stop somebody like Zeno, every time he says something we disagree with, we're not going to get very far in the conversation. So you have to kind of pick and choose which items you want to discuss, debate. And our goal was to discuss and debate the sort of major news of the week, not, you know, who he voted for in the 2020 election. That That's just generally how I approached it. Yeah. Like, I didn't feel like we invited Mark on to put him on trial. Right. And, and I guess it probably sounds a lot different than most podcasts where, progressives talk to conservatives because usually in all media consumed today, it is adversarial. And what we were trying to model was what it would be like if we weren't recording the conversation, right? Like, i.e. what it would be like 
for our listeners when they're having these conversations with people in their lives. And so, yeah, you know, when he referred to a president that we both voted for and that we like, I think both know, you know, like as evil, like obviously there's part of me that's like, Ooh, but I also am like, okay, well that's how he feels. Like, I'm not going to disabuse him of that notion right here. We can take what he's ultimately saying and say, okay, let's understand how you think about that. Let's offer you another way. So I think it's just about being respectful, which people are not used to hearing uh, people be respectful to people who disagree with them in the media they consume. All right. We also heard from John from San Francisco, whose feedback is really around the part of the conversation where we talked about Dr. Fauci. He said, when the subject of Dr. Fauci came up, I felt like there was an opportunity for a follow-up question that was sorely missed. You had the very rare occasion of having a conservative voice on your show who actually praised Dr. Fauci as an epidemiologist as opposed to the usual bashing. I was very surprised at the level of anger your guest showed toward Fauci as a messenger. I just really felt like you missed an opportunity for a conservative who seems to actually respect Dr. Fauci to admit the role that Trump played in hurting messaging and public safety during a pandemic. That lack of acknowledgement by anyone on the right fuels a deep sense of anger for myself and many of your listeners. So my question, Ravi, is maybe I didn't emphasize it enough. I I thought that I did introduce this idea that Fauci was under difficult constraints because of Trump. Yeah, I, I mentioned it for sure, which was around you know what Trump was saying in India and that you had a... Uh a president who in no way was backing him up, but also the, there's a question and maybe we could have done more for sure. Like point taken for sure. I think the question though is what is the goal? Like, let's say we get Mark to admit something, right? Is that the, is our goal to get somebody to admit something because our audience is persuaded, right? That's, that's kind of the way this whole conversation colors what we're trying to get out of the back and forth with Zeno is like our audience is not to be persuaded. What we're trying to do is model what a conversation would sound like. And to me, you know, it's not meet the press where I'm trying to be like, all right, I got that critical statement out of Mark. It's more like, hey, like, let's find the points where we can either agree or I can nudge you along slightly or where I could just gain an understanding uh, of where you are and where you come from, you know? Yeah. And I felt like, you know, where John is saying that it's an opportunity when a conservative says that they don't have any issues with the science uh, from Fauci for the most part. Uh, But I feel like that opportunity, that bell was rung when Mark said that. And so I'm like, I'm not taking that and going, okay, well, since you admit that, like, that's a win. You start with a win. That's great. And then from there, I felt like that's why rather than turn it into, okay, well, now I've got you on this and I want to show you how Trump messed up the messaging. I, that's why, you know, John, if you go back and listen, that's why I kind of tried to finish it with, you know, I think what we're all saying here is that when politicians get in the way of public health officials, it is very damaging to the messaging. And Mark agreed with that, which is a very different statement than if I say, well, so then you agree that the problem was Trump all along and not Fauci, which is a really high bar when you come into it with as soon as you bring up Fauci, Mark clearly feel he has strong anti-Fauci feelings. So to me, if I'm trying to persuade Mark of something, it is unrealistic for me to say, I'm going to make him completely change his mind about Fauci. Because also what's useful about that? Nothing. Like Fauci's leaving. Like it doesn't really matter. What's useful is to help him come to the conclusion that we've reached in terms of for future public health uh, information, just the idea that, hey, politics shouldn't play a role in it. 
you know, another thing I got uh, some comments on on Twitter was the student loan discussion. And I think, you know, there was this period of time where I went through the different majors that exist across the country, like turf science, turf grass science, and I think bakery management at Kansas State University is one of them that somebody pointed out. I think we might have had actually somebody who majored in that uh, tweet at me. And here's how I see the student loan thing. We've, we've talked about it a few times on the podcast. There are certain majors that I think should exist that I don't think the government should be bailing out those loans. I would start with my own. I have a JD. And I didn't use my JD to become a public defender. I had student loans. I don't think the government should be bailing out my student loans, uh, even though I think that JDs are important degrees, right? I think we should have lawyers. I think it's important to have lawyers, but I don't think in most cases that the government should bail it out. That's how I feel about bakery science, right? I love bakers. I think it's really important. I think that there are people really talented who do that work. I just don't think the government should be bailing out those loans in a, in a world of limited resources. You know, the government is not bailing those out in the future, at least according to Biden's plan. So, you know, there's some people in our audience who might disagree with that. But I just wanted to state like my philosophy there. It's not to say that these people aren't, aren't important to society, but just that this particular relief mechanism I don't think should apply. Okay, let's get to this this big one. Um, a lot of people said they couldn't get past Mark's uh, Mark's misogynistic comment, and they said they were disappointed that we didn't call it out. What he said was that uh, that student loan forgiveness was like a woman asking her husband for money to go shopping or to buy a fur coat after totaling uh, the car. I just thought it was so silly. As just, I just thought like everyone's going to hear that, and that's not going to be good for Mark. And I just felt like I didn't need to pile on. So I've heard from a few people in my life on this one, um, and I would say nobody appreciated the comment. I think different people had different reactions to it. Some people, some of our listeners sent me messages uh, that were kind of self-deprecating about it. Some people were like, look, I love this show, but if I hear too many of these types of things, it makes it hard to listen to. So I I take this very seriously. I think of this comment, and maybe I shouldn't, I thought of it at the time the way I thought of the comment about Biden and Trump which is if I stop the record here and talk about this comment, it could derail the entire conversation uh, around the issues that we're talking about. But I think on reflection, the difference is you and I are dudes talking to another dude. So when he's talking about people that are not represented in the conversation, it's different than two Biden supporters talking to a Trump voter uh, because we are representing Biden supporters. So I, I do reflect on that. And I think we have a ton of female listeners. So I just... I don't I don't want to I don't want to criticize Mark in his absence. I think the time would have been what I should have done was stop it right then and there. And so for our listeners, I just want to know I hear you on that and I do think that's different than the Trump comment. Uh and you know, I don't want to stop every like if we're going to have more of these conversations with Trump people, I do want to set the expectation that there're going to be a lot of pitches we're going to let go by, right? For sure. But I think if we're prioritizing when to stop the record or not, I think whenever there's somebody not represented in a conversation, that is the subject of some kind of joke or comment, those are the ones that we should prioritize addressing. So that's kind of my takeaway from that. And I hear our listeners on that. Thank you to everybody who uh, you know wrote in or who left voicemails or, or whatever about the conversation with Mark. Um, the majority of you, it seemed like, uh, said that you know even though there were parts of it that bothered you, that you found it to be a useful exercise, and we enjoyed it as a useful exercise. And it's the kind of thing that we would like to do more of. So hopefully, uh, you all agree, and you'll you'll look forward to listening to more episodes like that, whether it's with Mark or, or somebody else who doesn't hold the same views as us, but is interested in having a conversation that we can then model for listeners. 
All right. With that said, we have uh, two guests with us today that we're very excited to bring into the conversation. We're joined by Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silver, who are the co-hosts of the podcast Pantsuit Politics. Uh, both of us have guested on that podcast before and have listened to that podcast. It's a it's a outstanding podcast, so we're excited for you to meet them. Uh, the New York Times has called Pantsuit Politics a compelling and thoughtful listen, and it was named one of Apple Podcasts' best podcasts of 2021. So you really should be listening to them if you're not already. With that, uh, Sarah and Beth, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, all right. Well, before we started recording, uh, Sarah, you pointed out that there's some stuff that just happened. I mean, we're recording. What is this? This is Wednesday, 11 a.m. Central, and there's some stuff that just happened, and, and you were like, we're going to talk about this, right? So why don't you lead us into that? I mean, it is delicious. This is the DOJ's filing in response to the Trump team's request for a special master with regards to the Mar-a-Lago search. And it's, you know, you know how Merrick Garland had that press conference and just in like the coolest, calmest way was like, I'll call your bluff. This yeah. is like the legal filing equivalent of that. Only a little more fun, a little more jazzy, I think, personally. It is, just, <laughs> it's, it definitely contains the picture that's everywhere of literally just in the, these files with the biggest text possible, top secret, confidential, laid out on the ground next to a box of like framed magazine covers. It just, just they come in real hot. They're like, would you like a photo? You know, we had a conversation where Beth was like, I think he was being careless, which is it felt like where we are were in time. And I felt like this volume was the DOJ showing up and saying, we have we have passed careless. We are we are entering new territory. They are argue, basically arguing that he was purposely hiding things from the DOJ. There's a lot of great language around like, it's not yours, dummy. This stuff does not belong to you. It belongs to the American people. It's not yours. So this whole argument is silly because these are not your documents. Uh, it's just it's just a really fun romp. Highly recommend a read through. Highly recommend. So do we think that this is how they found the documents or that they laid them out on the floor to take a photo? That's what I haven't been able to figure out yet. I'm not sure either. I think this is such an illustration, though, of how Trump's legal team always tease up the best opportunity for the Justice Department to dunk on them because so they true. filed this motion to have a special master appointed in front of a different judge than the judge who authorized the warrant. So the DOJ rolls in and is like, let us give you a comprehensive look at the facts here. <laughs> yeah. And so we get even more than we got from the affidavit because they march through time to say, you told us you did a diligent search. We came in and found stuff on your desk, not even in boxes in the storage room, but there were classified materials just laying around the 45 office. So I don't know about that photo, but they paint a vivid verbal picture of total haphazardness with very sensitive materials all over Mar-a-Lago, like I, Easter eggs. I, I do remember as a, as a litigator when somebody would give you the opportunity to just summarize everything that had happened to that point, like if you were trying to survive summary judgment or something like... And, and I remember I would sit down and, and about halfway through writing out like the entire case and just like feeling like, oh, my God, I'm just piling on these people. This judge is just going to be like, this thing's over. And then you get done and you realize like you just wrote like 30 pages and the judge is busy and they're going to breeze through the main points. But in this case, <laughs> in this case, they got to do yeah, all that. Read every like, word. Yeah, everybody is going to read every unredacted part of this. That would be that'd be a rare lawyer exciting moment. Uh, I, I can. You can I can feel see their that. excitement. 
Well, because they even got to do lawyery things, like say that the request for the special master wasn't timely, that they waited too long to ask. And then they cite the fact that Michael Cohen asked the same day as a search of his stuff for a special master. They're like, even Michael Cohen's a better lawyer than you guys. It's just, (laughs) it is a real fun read for lawyers, for sure. Does any of this matter politically? That's what Ravi and I have been trying to sort out. Well, I mean, I think if you look at the political write-ups of the cases of, you know, Republican Senate candidates all over the country, I feel like the answer is yes. I feel like they feel the the dead weight that is Trump's obsession with the 2020 presidential election and all these additional investigations. And you can just feel them kind of I always think about that, what they teach lifeguards, right? Like how to, or or as a normal person, right? You're not supposed to try to save a drowning person because they'll just drown you too. This feels like what's happening right now. He is drowning. They cannot learn the lesson that he is just going to take you down with them. And I just, I think it matters. I think it matters. I think he knows it matters. That's why he put out 80 plus statements on Truth Social yesterday is because he learned that lesson in 2016. Just the, you know, just the smell of an investigation is often enough. Now, do I think it's enough for his tried and true to to break the fever dream? Probably not. But does it matter to, you know, voters, moderates, independents, all these newly registered voters we're seeing? Yeah, I think it does. Well, one of the things I was wondering is, I mean, their move seems to be to put it on the Democrats and be like, because yeah, I agree. Like people are like, hey, we want to move on from 2020. Politically, that's how people feel. And so it seems like his team and Republican Senate and congressional candidates are going like, yeah, that's why it's so messed up that the Biden Justice Department is still on this and it's harassing this guy. We all want to move on. So that's what I can't figure out is whether that's effective. Ravi, where are you right now? You're talking to like real human beings. Yeah, I'm on the road this week. I'm in Allentown right now. And I... I actually, interesting you should say about like how his tried and true view all of this. I had dinner last night with two GOP activists and I just came from the Lehigh County Republican Party office where I spent an hour with the Republican Party chair for Lehigh County. And shout out to him for sitting down with me for an hour. I would say that at least from the Pennsylvania perspective, which obviously is a state we both have to win at the gubernatorial level and the the Senate level, is the gubernatorial here, Shapiro is in really good shape. Like last night, I could not get these two guys to say a single nice word about Democrats about anything. But one of the guys just like mentioned as an aside, he's like, but that Shapiro guy, I like that guy. And the same thing I heard today in the the chair's office, I was like, hey, like, how are you viewing these races? It was very clear to me that they view the Shapiro uh, Mastriano race as the hardest one to win. And the persecution complex is real, both last night and today. I'm hearing all about the media and their obsession with Trump. I, by the way, I don't hear anything about Biden, by the way, which is interesting. It's all about the obsession with Trump, the media's obsession. When people were talking to you about the obsession with Trump and the persecution complex, does anybody talk about this stuff with the documents in Mar-a-Lago? No. Like, are they specific? No, this didn't come up at all. Actually, they talk about January 6th more than anything else. And the media generally, like this GOP chair today, just would not stop talking about the media and how the media is setting up Trump and yada, yada, yada. Now, one interesting anecdote from that conversation, he was they were walking me through how they're challenging Democrats. I don't think they Googled me, but they, they were walking me through how they're challenging all the Democrats, dropping off mail-in ballots and all this. And they're, you know, they're, it's victim complex 
like to the you know like to the 20th degree of about how democrats are stealing this or stealing that and i asked the guy the chair how much of your time is spent on dealing with election denial claims versus like offensive like voter identification persuasion yada 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 he said 40 percent of his time i got him on audio saying this 40 percent of his time is spent just fielding complaints from people about election denialism and i'm like that's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> like, wow. It's like, you know, we've been through this before. Like, I'm not saying this means we're going to win or anything like that, but they're not spending their time productively. And he knew it too. This is kind of a reasonable guy outside of his like theories around Trump and all that. Like from a strictly nuts and bolts electioneering perspective, he knew he was in trouble. If he knows that, then why would they let Mastriano get as far as he's got? Like, I don't understand. Yeah reasonable people in the party infrastructure not trying to get ahead of these primaries to say, whoa, we don't want to be spending 40 percent of our time on this. And you only got the nomination because that's what you spend all your time on. Like, I just don't. I had a good conversation with this guy about this. Actually, both nights, like there's because there's a lot of breakaway, not a lot. There is a significant breakaway group called Republicans for Shapiro by this guy, Charlie Dent, who's like a prominent Republican in the state. And basically what happened was Mastriano's primary was so heated that a lot of his opponents still have bad blood, which is what we hope for in Ohio, too, with Vance, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it is mm-hmm. real here. This guy, on the record, on audio, told me, hey, it's still an obstacle. There are still a lot of Republicans who have hard feelings about that primary. So needless to say, I'm excited. I'm like I'm, tr- I'm like true, Jason, when you pick him up from school and something exciting happened. That's what I am right now. That's why I'm talking so much about this. Like, There's some stuff I really like to hear. I, I wouldn't say I'm jazzed about the Fetterman dynamic right now, but I, I feel really good about the gubernatorial right now based on what I'm hearing. Well, and I feel good that they're not talking about Biden because what I don't want is this energy of like Biden is going after Trump and this is really motivated by Biden. So if they're not talking about him, I mean, fine. That's fine with me. And I think you know, look, this this stuff is early. This stuff is if you're a person who pays attention, you can see where this is going. Do I think it's bubbled up for the, the you know, majority of Americans? No. Do I hope it'll bubble up around the late October? Perhaps. But I don't know if that's going to happen or not. I'm very, you know, listen, I'm very Liz Cheney about this. This is about the rule of law and how it plays out is how it plays out, um, because to me that is really important. And I think, you know, propping back up the rule of law is good politics, whether it's might not be good politics this year, but it's good politics down the road. But I think this is the the chickens are coming home to roost. This is what I this is what we're seeing, I think, in so many places. And I think, you know, you know, politically, it feels like they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. I'm sure that's how Mitch McConnell feels right now, like just with the candidates nominated, with the fact that he's not actually supporting them financially, just all of that. I think those chickens are coming to home to roost, too. I mean, I just there's only so much you can, you know, hold together with duct tape and truth social. And I feel like those days are coming to an end. That's a good transition to our next topic, which is just zooming out from Pennsylvania and zooming out from even the Trump Mar-a-Lago fiasco. The trends nationally are interesting. Post Dobbs, we're seeing a different midterm election. So 538 had a write-up after last week's results in the New York special elections to say special election performance is predictive. 
Right now, Democrats, since Dobbs, are outperforming expectations by an average of nine points in special elections. They won outright the Hudson Valley seat that they weren't supposed to win, and they outperformed in another race that they were expected to get clobbered in, but only lost by seven points. And they put that together with a couple other special elections that happened, saying, look, Democrats are in good shape. Uh, that comes also as Politico reported that Republicans like Masters in Arizona are scrubbing their websites of their previous <laughs> abortion positions. We're on the, the advance. They're on the defensive. Jason, if you remember, we talked about this in the head of 2020. This is really important. How do you all feel about this right now? What are you seeing out there? I think the scrubbing of the website, especially in Arizona, is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Arizona is where I have the most anxiety going into the midterm elections. I am very nervous about Carrie Lake and the fact that she's been a TV presence. And and so a lot of people just have a softer image of her than who she wants to be as the governor. That makes me extremely nervous. So to know that something is happening to make the master's team say, oh, our voters might be a little more moderate than we think they are, gives me a little bit of a boost. I don't know if it carries the day, but it it feels good to me that as this issue has become more real and less theoretical, I'm always stuck in this in-between where I feel like everything has changed in American politics and nothing has changed in American politics. Like it feels like I'm always balancing these two sort of trends where it does feel like, well, the Republican Party has certainly changed. And also the reality of, of course, that's not going to what you do in a primary is not going to work in a general is still true. Right. Like and that's still true. And they are proving that the fact that they're walking all this back. And are like, oh, wait. And and it's it's even more obvious because their primaries have gotten so extreme. Like you see this sort of more extreme example of the walking back. I feel good about um, the cancellation of TV buys. I feel good a lot about about a lot of things. I feel good about this this spike in voter registration among women post Dobbs. All those things feel really great to me. Um, It also just feels like sort of the economic trends are going to be well timed. Like you said, when they're when you see them behaving in a defensive manner, it's not it's hard not to be excited about it. Yeah, what fascinates me about it is like there's no question that it's a good thing that they're not talking about Biden, right? Because what are we in? We're in a midterm election, and traditionally you don't do well in midterms if you're the party that has the White House because you know it, they make it a choice about that about the person in the White House and the party that they represent. And if they're not in a position to do that right now, it's because of one of two things, probably a little bit of both. It's because of uh, you know the fact that Trump still dominates the news cycle, which is why they're complaining about that to you, Ravi. So it's almost like it's becoming a referendum on him as much as it is on the actual president, President Biden. And then the other thing, and I think this is newer. I think this is over the last two to three weeks. I think even if I mean, we've seen where the approval numbers have gotten better for President Biden and, you know, you don't know if that's going to last. But either way, it does represent a momentum. And so Mm -hmm. just the fact that we're in a position where we're what? What are we two months? We're like nine weeks out or something like that. I don't know. Um, And. They're not just every day Biden this, Biden that. Like everybody made fun of the fact that Oz made a whole video about how groceries were expensive under Biden and people like it, it became about crudite. Like, so my, my point is that uh, so that's definitely a positive. And what I think is interesting, Sarah, to your point about it feels like everything's changed, but maybe it hasn't. Even with things, whether they've changed or not, like it was pretty clear to me that people like Vance in Ohio and Masters in Arizona were like Peter Thiel guys who had decided, 
Look, mm-hmm. we're going to do the... It's not... It's far right, but it's also new right. Like new, scary, authoritarian right. We're going to do this this way, this philosophy, this sort of nihilistic philosophy. And we're going to uh, aim directly at our win scenario. And our win scenario is built on the idea that it is a midterm election. Biden will be unpopular. And so, therefore, it'll it'll look actually more... Uh, ironically like 2016 like the 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 side that has the more enthusiasm is going to win so we're just going to run hard right and generate that enthusiasm and what they've run into that they didn't expect is enthusiasm from the side that actually occupies the white house which doesn't usually happen and it i totally think it's because of the dobbs decision i wonder if this squares with what you heard ravi or what you're hearing in pennsylvania I feel like it's one thing for Biden to be largely unpopular for people to be like Afghanistan was poorly managed and prices are too high. But I I think Republicans take that so hard to like. And now we want the House to work on impeaching Biden and that the public's like, no, pause. That's not what we're here for. For sure. I would say that the one thing I'm hearing over and over and over again is that that people are not as definable in some of these counties uh, like there's this neighboring county here that is the bellwether for Pennsylvania that you know basically has a 100% track record over the past few elections of predicting all statewide winners. Most people you talk to there don't identify the people that we talk to as a Democrat or Republican. And so when you start talking crazy talk around, I'm going to impeach this person or that, even stuff we would agree with, like Trump should go to jail or something, they don't love any of that stuff. They just like practical stuff. So, you know, I was talking to somebody, we were talking to somebody yesterday who is anti-abortion, but loves the student loan bailout. So like, people are not easily definable and doesn't know how she's going to vote in the Senate election. Like for that person, wouldn't it have been easier for them to make their decision pre-Dobbs? Because mm-hmm. that person is voting for the Senate, as ostensibly voting for someone who will confirm Supreme Court justices. And and so if, if one of the first things they mentioned to you was abortion, well, then that's going to be their priority in a pre-Dobbs world. In a post-Dobbs world, they're going, okay, well, uh, you know, I don't know what my state's going to do, but the country has ruled the way that I was voting in Senate races to have it rule. I guess now I'll look at this student loan thing. Well, there's an embarrassment. Like there's something I can't pick up on audio as much, but you see it in the body language. When you ask a Republican in this state about abortion, they get shifty in their body language. Uh, because they mm. they aren't even the people who just and and with all due respect to people who have different opinions than I do, I'm not saying that all these people aren't honestly held beliefs. I just think they're uncomfortable with the reality that exists. It's almost like they're the dog who caught the car. They're almost like woo, like now we got it, and we're not sure what to do with this. And you know, I think the the, the well intention of them, like the random person on the street. I think just kind of feels bad for people who like have different opinions than them. And then the activists like the chair or the guy I had dinner with last night, I'm not sure how like honestly held their beliefs are, but they certainly are feeling the politics of it. So nobody seems to be wanting to talk about that issue on the right. Yeah, that is a big flag. Yes. I just that's what I mean. Like everything is the same but different. Like I feel like the the political reality of primaries and you over and then you sort of you overcorrect you pull it back a little bit after you've appeared you know appealed to your party faithful still applies but i have from the beginning thought this basic understanding about midterm felt real out of date here in 2022 and everybody's like well, this is just what happens the first primary or the first midterm after a president's elected and i just kept thinking yeah 
And also, do we really think that is still completely applicable when we have a former president behaving in no way, shape or form the way a former president has ever behaved in the history of our country? Like, that seems like a pretty dang big exception. I think the economy, you just can't predict it. So putting all your eggs in that basket and thinking that's how you're going to win the midterms was also a kind of like, I don't know, guys, is that going to work for you? Because the, the economy also changes and shifts and gives weird messages when, you know, the stock market's still taking off. Obviously, we're all talking about inflation at a more rapid pace than it used to. And then you throw Dobbs on top of it, which I, you know, what I, has felt so profound to me since that decision is, you know, I'm an elder millennial. I'm 41 years old. So I've, I've sort of been absorbed in this debate my entire life. And it felt like because Supreme Court decisions in this weird way sort of freeze us in time, so much of the rights orientation was like how people felt about abortion in the late 1970s, early 1980s, when nobody would talk about it, when you didn't have public stories, when you didn't have, oh, I don't know, social media in order to platform said stories and experiences. And so I just think that that came you know, it even shocked me. Someone, I used to work at Planned Parenthood. And still I'm like, wow, you just forget how much people's opinion on this have shifted. Even if they sort of got stuck in the Roe v. Wade formulation of things, once Roe v. Wade was off the table, you just realize, oh, this debate in people's minds, their experiences, their awareness of women's experiences inside reproductive health has really, really changed <laughs> since Roe v. Wade was decided. And I just don't think they... I definitely don't think the members of the Supreme Court anticipated that. I don't think the Republican Party anticipated that. And I feel like it's just slapping them in the face over and over, even faster than I anticipated. And you're de- that's why they're so shifty. They don't want to talk about an 11-year-old crossing state lines to get an abortion. Of course they don't. But again, even as someone who's absorbed, like sort of just been in this debate as long as I can remember as an adult, it even caught me off guard. So I'm sure it's catching them off guard. Well, I think there is an aspect of Dobbs that is such a reminder of what it looks like when you have this raw exercise of political power. And that does, to your point, Jason, make it more of a referendum on Trump than Biden, because I think the principal job of the next Congress is going to be to ensure that we certify a free and fair election in 2024. And so in a way, like it's it's most accurate to view this as a referendum on Trump, who is still out there saying Someone somehow somewhere should make me the president immediately as recently as yesterday. You know, when that's when that's happening, of course, it's a referendum on Trump. That's not the media's fault. I I think that just to put a button on this, I I think the other takeaway from it is that, you know, you all were saying that it, it did feel like a regular midterm for a while. But like, Sarah, you didn't trust the idea that it was. And I guess the the part that I didn't trust was this idea that if you get stuff done, you'll be rewarded for it politically. Like I was starting to get honestly a little cynical about the idea that like when you accomplish things that you'll get credit for it because we become so partisan and so tribal and so like parliamentary in the way that we think about our elections. But you know, the last few weeks, I don't know if it sticks, but the last few weeks indicate that when you get stuff done, uh, people are like, yeah, good job. I kind of like that stuff. might keep you around. And, and then the other side of it, Dobbs is when you do stuff, people don't like, they're like, no, 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 we, we don't like that. We're not going to reward you for that. And, you know, there, it's refreshing to think that you can you can pass an Inflation Reduction Act, you can do something big on student loans, and people go, yeah, he's doing some stuff. I approve. 
Yeah, there's you know there's this saying you don't want to peak too early. I think with Biden, maybe he cratered just early enough for us. Hopefully, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you probably have heard us talk about our Helix mattresses, which we're obsessed with. And you've also heard us talk about the fact that Helix has left the bedroom and has entered the living room with Allform. There's a few things that make an Allform sofa really cool. The sofas are designed to be flexible and adaptable, so it's a sofa that can grow with the way you live. The Allform collection has got everything from armchairs and love seats to an eight-seat sectional, so you can find the perfect piece for any space. They're shipped directly to your door. The Allform sofa that is in our house, which is just off the spot where True eats breakfast, is so alluring to him that in the morning he'll get halfway through his breakfast before school and then you look over and he's walked away from his breakfast and he's laid down on that sofa. And we have to remind him that we really don't need to take breaks midway through our breakfast. We can just continue eating our breakfast. And he's like, well, can I eat it over here? And we're like, no, please don't eat it on the all-form sofa. We really like the all-form sofa. You too can have this sort of adorable exchange with your child if you get an all-form sofa. All-form is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash majority 54. So that's allform.com slash majority 54. Step up your sofa game today. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Look, if you haven't had therapy or even if you had and you're thinking about maybe I should talk to somebody, it's generally hard to know when you should talk to somebody because in order to know that you should talk to somebody, you have to like at least sort of have figured out what's going on with you. Usually we make the mistake of feeling like I have to have figured out what's bothering me before I go work it out with a therapist. You don't necessarily have to have figured that out. They'll help you figure that out. And even if you've never been to a therapist before, BetterHelp is a great way to do it, especially if that's the case, because especially if you're thinking about giving therapy a try, uh, that's why it's a great option for you. It's convenient. It's accessible. It's affordable. It's entirely online. You get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey, and then you can switch therapists anytime, which is important, right? If it's not working for you, then make a change. And they're there to make sure you can do that. So when you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can help get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash M54 today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash M54. Let's talk about something wildly different. Now, I don't, Beth, Sarah, I, I don't take you two as Rogan listeners. Well, earlier when you were talking about nihilistic takes, I was like, there's your transition. Don't miss it. There's your transition to Joe Rogan and Mark Zuckerberg. So I've now listened to the two and a half hour interview so that you don't have to. Uh, but I did that. Oh, I, I did my oh, homework. Good, I'm ready. Right, I did Beth, not. So you and I, you I did and not. I, so I appreciate You and I can it. educate them. So I, I read the little transcripts you wrote. Robbie. Great. Thank well, you. yeah. It, uh, the, so the. This is an interview that Zuckerberg did on the Rogan show. Rogan generally takes a lot of time to talk to people. And so I think we learned a lot in this interview. I would say, even if you don't like Rogan and you don't like Zuckerberg, you might want to listen to this interview because you learn a lot about a couple of really important things in American society. One is, you know, Facebook, Instagram. Most of us use these tools. Just where are they heading? Two is debates around the algorithms that we all interact with every day. And then third is this debate around the Hunter Biden laptop, which is taking over the right. I've actually heard it since I've been here. I've heard it multiple times about this very appearance. I'll start, though, and Beth, you can help fill in some of the color on this. The first hour of this interview wasn't about any of the politics. It was about this move that Facebook is making towards virtual reality. And I think it's, this is worth talking about because they were like getting into this philosophical debate about what is real and what is not. You know, Rogan was like, I kind of want to live in the real world. And then Zuckerberg is like, well, what is real? Like the digital world is real. One of the thought experiments that I like to do is um, thinking about how few of the things 
that we physically have in the world actually need to be physical. You know, obviously things like chairs need to be physical, right? You're not going to be sitting mm-hmm. on a hologram. Food needs to be physical. But most entertainment type stuff, I mean, not just cards, but games, most media, TVs in the future probably won't need to actually be physical things. It'll just be like a, an app, like a, we'll just have an app there on your, on your wall. And, you know, it's like snap your fingers, get the hologram there for the TV and we can have our glasses and watch whatever you want. How do we feel about this world like this? If you've seen Wally, like, are we going to be like this sort of the Wally human strapped in a chair just in this metaverse uh, at some point? And are we excited about that future? I thought it was fascinating how Zuckerberg was trying to both say that the digital world is real by turning it into this idea that physicality is really important and we can experience physicality Mm -hmm. digitally. They had this extended back and forth about jujitsu and MMA that I thought was actually illuminating. Like these are words I never thought I would put together. Hold on, this is a fire drill. Oh no. Uh, You guys keep going. Beth, you can educate them on what's going on. Let's just leave this in. Ravi, stop, drop and roll. Whatever you got to do. Did it stop? Okay, I'm gonna exit. I'll be back as soon as they let me. But they let me back in. Um, but you, Beth, you can educate them on the rest of this, and I'll be back. Okay. <laughs> what the heck? This is the first one for us as a podcaster. Did he? Yeah. Mute? First, first fire drill for us as well. Okay. Yeah. MMA. Yeah. What Zuckerberg was saying is that uh, jujitsu is very important to him because the physical experience of it. And what he wants is to be able to recreate that experience digitally, more resistance um, when you're using a digital device to simulate that experience. And so, you know, Rogan was kind of like, are we going to the Matrix then where everything is a simulation? And Zuckerberg was kind of saying no, no in his direct responses and yes, definitely in his indirect responses. And so I took this in. I start with a lot of skepticism. I think hard no. I don't want any of this. My husband owns the Oculus. I won't put it on. I don't like it. But at the same time, I thought about uh, he, he talked about holograms a lot. When my mother was hospitalized with COVID, if I could have appeared in her room as a hologram, would I have taken that moment? A hundred percent. So I don't know how to even process the scope of what they're imagining. Um, I just sit back and worry about the control aspects of it. Uh, but the but the possibility, I have to admit, has more upside than I am initially inclined to recognize. I mean, I wouldn't be mad about us sitting in a holographic room together instead of screens on Zoom, right? That wouldn't be the end of the world. That would be sort of an interesting way to record this podcast and feel more real um, in a way than what we're doing right now. So I, I understand the appeal I just think it's bold when you have a growing and terrifying teen mental health crisis. Really, like, easy to point to as, you know, a a fallout from an increasingly online generation. You know, I think that our brains don't evolve quite as quickly as Mark Zuckerberg wants to believe that they do and that we still require a lot of physicality you know we talk we, i mean it's just interesting that he's pushing this at the same moment you know 
the body keeps the score is like on the bestseller list for the 50th, 100th week in a row, right? Like we're obviously having this conversation at the same time as we're dealing with physical burnout and mental health crises and the physicality of trauma and the physicality of recovering from trauma. And he's like, no, no, we're going to go online. And I just want to be like, are you participating or even taking in both of these conversations? Because they seem in direct conflict with one another. What? Yeah, and, and that's where he's been the whole time, right? He he's been one of the people uh pushing society in this direction because that's been his vision and that's where he's made his money quite literally and and built something from it that's changed the world. I guess when I hear all this I'm just like, yeah, this is obviously where everything's going. Like I it to me it just doesn't seem I guess it's two things. One, it doesn't seem surprising. You hear Wally and you're like, yeah, that's where we're going. That no, movie traumatized like me. I don't ever want to be like that. I'm not excited. I'm just saying, like, I, I feel like there's a foregone conclusion. Like, like the quote about, you know, how you're just going to have an app there on your wall, you snap your fingers, it's going to be there on your TV. I'm like, yeah, that just feels like we're pretty much there. Like, we're really close to there. And, and so I'm not surprised by it. So I feel like, to me, the conversation is... It's not should is this good or is this bad and what do, it's more like okay well how are we going to manage this this reality we're going like as a parent I'm just like okay how are we going to manage this reality and then also as a as a person involved in politics it's like okay already we have a huge problem in this country where people aren't in any way getting to know anyone who is unlike them or getting to know anyone who doesn't live where they live and think the way they think. So what are we going to do to mitigate the fact that this is clearly going to exacerbate that problem? Yeah, I think what are the rules and what are the manipulations? You know, Zuckerberg, I think, has been successful because he is masterful at compartmentalizing. He he will in no way acknowledge the responsibility. Rogan said the word responsibility over and over in this conversation. And Zuckerberg was never like, yeah, it keeps me up at night. He's more every time Rogan would take it in that direction, Zuckerberg would be like, I mean, we're just competitors in a marketplace and we got to make our product good so people will stay with us. He literally used the word agnostic. Yes. Yes. And it was really interesting to me how Rogan was kind of making the guns don't kill people, people kill people argument about algorithms. He was like, you decide what you want to engage with. And the algorithm just mirrors that back to you. And Zuckerberg was kind of like, no, it's the gun, because he kept saying these tiny tweaks can drastically change your experience. So to your point about how do you control it? I agree. This conversation would be really interesting if we were all holograms sitting in a room together and so what are the rules around that robbie's back all right and yay appears appears on building is okay um here's the thing though i think is really important that i try to remind myself is particularly when i'm having a conversation about meta slash facebook which is that they are in trouble i think you could get stuck in a debate just like with roe v wade and i think especially for you know people of our age, it's easy to get stuck in this framework of Facebook as a this behemoth that controls so much. But that's not who they are anymore. If we were all 25, we'd be like, why are we talking about Facebook? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like, that's not who they are anymore. Their market share is fading. And Meta is not turning that around as far as anyone can tell. There's a way that I can see sort of your take, Jason, that it's like inevitable. And I can very easily be persuaded that 
Zuckerberg and the sort of future of Facebook is increasingly irrelevant. A couple other things about this conversation that like to bring it back to the politics. There was a whole separate piece about algorithms that's really interesting that people should should listen to basically where Rogan pushed back a little bit about, well, why don't you just have a chronological news feed? Zuckerberg, I thought, was very unpersuasive in his response, essentially saying, well, what if like if you did chronological, then a business could just keep spamming one after another? Obvious rejoinder to that is you just unfollow that business, right? Um, he also said, "Well, what if your you know cousin had a baby or whatever? How would you not know?" I'd be like, "Well, Facebook isn't the only way you learn about these things, and right and like, <laughs> God, I hope not, right?" But just like he he clearly didn't say the thing that really is driving his love of the algorithms. This is a way he makes profits to fuel the meta stuff that he's excited about the the metaverse stuff. Uh, so all that aside, the politics part, though, to this, and that I think our listeners are going to hear about, if they haven't already, is that Zuckerberg was asked by Rogan about suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story. Now, Twitter straight up took down posts related to Hunter Biden's laptop at the time. Uh, Facebook merely de-emphasized it in their algorithms. Now, the literal thing that was being reported in a lot of these stories turned out to be true, which is there was a laptop in the possession of the FBI. It was Hunter Biden's laptop. I think we can say at this point that that is true. People on the right are up in arms about the fact that they believe that story was suppressed. Like, I do think it's an interesting debate. And like, if we're charitable, like we shouldn't be suppressing anything factual, although like that close to an election based on the history, we could all have that debate. Now, what, what Rogan pressed Zuckerberg on was, well, why did you do it? And and was there like any coordination with the FBI? Zuckerberg admitted that the FBI had been issuing warnings to Facebook or in and around that period of time about general election interference. And that was the background that Zuckerberg took into account when he decided to de-emphasize the Hunter Biden laptop. The right wing is running with this. And for our listeners, this is where I want to underline this. They're running with this claiming that the FBI asked Zuckerberg to take that down, which is not true. They didn't even, according to what we know today, didn't even reference the Hunter Biden laptop. So that's the misinformation that I want to underline here. That is not what happened here. The FBI did not ask, at least according to information we have today, for Facebook to take down that particular post. I thought Zuckerberg played that a little cute in the interview, too. I did, I would, I did not respect the way he handled that conversation with Rogan. Yes, yeah, say, say more. Remind me. I think Zuckerberg purposefully used that as an opportunity to dunk on Twitter oh, yeah, to yeah, say yeah, that yeah, Facebook handled it better <laughs> and to act like the victim of the FBI. I do think Zuckerberg was vague enough in that interview that if you were kind of half paying attention, which you would be in hour three, yeah. <laughs> you know, that that it that you could walk away thinking the FBI asked him to suppress the Hunter Biden story specifically. I think he played to the audience and let that be the illusion, especially to come out looking better than Twitter. And so I, I just didn't think he handled it very fairly at all. What happened to our Facebook Supreme Court? How come I never hear Good about question. Them They're still they turning. They're still going. Good question. He They're talked about going. them in this interview. Yeah. Okay. That's was my question. He's very Did proud he of mention it. them? He's very mm-hmm. proud of it. Okay. So we're still going to do that. We're still, we still got some eggs He did in that say basket. that they're spending $5 billion, which is noticeably half of what they're spending on the metaverse, but they're spending $5 billion on uh, a year on what he calls defense. So counterintelligence activities. What does that mean? Yeah. Counterintelligence, you know, like taking down posts, yada, yada, yada. And he talks about the traitors. Trying to prevent genocide and civil war fueled by Facebook posts. That would yeah. be good. That'd be a top priority. There's a part of me that's left to, and because like part of what he talks about, and this is where like you take out the the lack of trust a lot of us have in Z- Zuckerberg and you, like, you could just say, this is a tough situation to create algorithms to take down content versus having human beings taking down content, which have their own 
human, you know, faults and flaws, just the sheer amount, you know, billions of people on this platform, like the amount of people and and what algorithms can sometimes miss. So it's it's a tough balance. Like I'm left thinking to myself, I'm not sure Zuckerberg's doing all the right things, but I'm not sure what the right balance is between machines and people taking stuff down, you know? It's also really hard to figure out how the government would regulate this yeah. because it's because it's really clear that there there needs to be adult supervision here and that it's not coming from Mark Zuckerberg. Right. <laughs> right, right. I mean, he's not the adult, right? So no. it's like it's, he needs adult supervision. You know, all of these all of these behemoth tech companies that are really media companies that are shaping the reality that we live in, like virtual and otherwise, uh they need some sort of oversight, but it is very difficult to figure out who in government is going to do that and be able to do it a fairly but b and maybe this is actually a competently it's a, it's a really hard thing to figure out how do you do this in a in a free society well and which government like which government cuz our our government is one thing we we can't figure out how to do it fairly here in a, a free press society one of the most expression forward countries in the world but what facebook does in the united states isn't even the biggest part of its portfolio anymore. So like which governments get involved here too? And again, though, just to push back on this idea of like this is inevitable and who's regulating this and how do we figure that out? I mean, exhibit cryptocurrency, which definitely felt inevitable and has definitely sort of fallen apart. And we're really trying desperately to figure out how to regulate. To me, it's like, again, that's another example of like, especially with tech and especially in our rapidly changing environment, political and otherwise, assuming that you know how this is going to play out and who the big players will be when the dust settles, it's just really never a safe assumption. The other thing about this regulation debate, though, around social media is you, when, whenever I think of a regulation, I have to think of it in, in DeSantis's hands, in Trump's hands, Lindsey Graham's hands, not just our people. There's a 50-50 chance always that these things get in the hands of somebody who you have a different political belief of. So to me, that's why I tend towards, even though I don't love a libertarian world compared to my perfect world, often I've been defaulting more libertarian lately because of the sheer probability that a lot of these regulations will be in the hands of people I don't trust, if that makes any sense. Yeah. But they, again, back to our very beginning of this conversation, they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. They're not looking to like dive into <laughs> yes. the nitty gritty of regulation. That's not what they came to government to do. They came to dunk on liberals, especially DeSantis. And the nitty gritty of regulation is like really not... Yeah not their top priority. But more, I wouldn't want to give them the the power to abuse it, right? So like, let's yeah. say we pass a law saying that we can actually like force social media companies to take down certain content. I would not want that in the hands of somebody I don't trust, for example. A question that I have about all of this is like, if you think about the Facebook advisory board and the defense spending and the fact that they, they are creating a nation uh, in a lot of ways, is there something about that contrast that could be beneficial to rebuilding trust in our institutions to say, hey, look what look at the power of government as held by a corporation, a multinational corporation. Is that what you want here? Or is it is there something more transparent about that Facebook advisory board being a Supreme Court that at the end of the day is is accountable to someone who's accountable to shareholders? I don't know. I'm just interested. You know, it's interesting you should say that. One of Mark Zuckerberg's favorite books is this book called The End of Power by this guy, Moses Naim, which is all about what you're talking about. Like, 
Zuckerberg talked about this years ago, which is about how nation states matter less and all these other actors matter more. That's his vision. That's his. That's like his dream. And he's basically there now. He's creating his own little fiefdom. You know, Defense Department, Supreme Court. You know. But again, even corporate nations or nation states need new citizens, and he doesn't have <laughs> yeah. those. So I don't know. You know, I don't know. Well, but he's trying to gain them by going into other areas, right? That's the idea. Is take all this money, make Facebook a lot, make Meta or whatever, make Facebook a loss leader in order to create this virtual world. I mean, it's it's Apple pre-iPhone. Well, you know, there's this guy, Noah Yuval Harari, who wrote this book, Sapiens and Homo Deus and all these, and his theory is citizens aren't going to be needed anymore. Like, and like these new powerful entities, whether they're, they're countries or not, like in the world of AI and other digital technologies, you don't need the tailorist sort of factory worker that used to upend nation states back in the day. Those people are irrelevant. Instead of being exploited, which was the last turn of the century, the 1800s to the 1900s, the big debate was around exploitation. Now it's going to be around relevance, where instead of exploiting the population, they just don't need them at all, right? And so that's what some of these entities, both countries and uh, these big corporations, they don't even need to deal with the people the way that other mega successful corporations would like a Ford Motors did back in the day. And that's an even scarier world in some ways, you know? Yeah, this conversation took a turn. <laughs> yeah, you got us on the right day. Well, Woo! so in our grab and or, I'll have more to say about this next week. But, you know, for listeners who've been longtime listeners know this, I, I used to run a network of schools in Jackson, Mississippi and Nashville, Tennessee. We've been dealing with a water crisis for a long time, all the way back when I was there. We were handing out bottled water at various points, but it certainly hasn't gotten a lot of attention uh, until this week. And this week, there's just a series of catastrophic events I won't go into. Biden just declared a state of emergency. And I'm going down there just to, uh, you know, our schools are shut down to, to help out, but also do some reporting. People should get involved and donate. I'm going to tweet out after this, just a series of different ways to, to donate. There's some ways you can donate directly to the students and educators on the ground that I know that are working on this, but also I'll give you something that's more general to get involved because it's a, it's a real crisis on the ground down there. I'm so glad that you mentioned that, Ravi. We've been hearing from listeners who are in Jackson who are, you know, saying, I don't have clean water yet. We're trying to get bottled water. It's such a weird thing to see that flooding has caused a lack of water to think about this place that simultaneously has too much and too little water at the same time. And I've been struck in the past few weeks at how when I just go through my morning news ritual, so many stories are about water. And so I think getting involved here is really important both to immediately help people in Jackson and also to just educate ourselves about what future water events are going to require of us. All right. This has been awesome. I feel like Pantsuit Politics is sort of like our, our sister podcast because <laughs> um, you you tackle such similar stuff and in such a similar way. So I'm really glad uh, because you all have been nice enough to expose us to your audience uh, expose your audience to us. I don't really know. Maybe there shouldn't be exposing. You've been nice enough to allow <laughs> yeah, us keep to, your clothes to on, guest on your yeah. show. <laughs> yeah, to guest on your show, and uh, and so it's really nice to be able to have you on ours. Uh, so let's take this opportunity. Tell people where they can listen to you, where they can read your book, where they can find you on social, all that stuff. You can listen to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We have new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays, and we would love to invite your audience to listen along with us. You can find us on Instagram. That's our most active uh, social media channel. And we have two books. I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. A Guide to Gracefield Political Conversations. And Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided About. Basically everything. And you can find those wherever you find books. 
All right. Thank you both so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you again to Sarah and Beth for joining us. You can reach us about this episode or whatever's on your mind at 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. You can email us at m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. That's m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. As always, I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow Pantsuit Politics at Pantsuit Politic, no S there at the end, on Twitter and our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, E.D. Allard, and Adesua Agmanile. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman and special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world. For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.